electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, Carl, thanks so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour, the biggest question in the market right now, whether rising interest rates are going to wreck the bull run for your money. We discuss, debate that with our investment committee today. We'll also join, be joined a little later on by Kathy Wood, whose ARK Investments has set the ETF world on fire. Joining me for the hour today, Joe Terranova, Steve Weiss, John Najarian, and Kerry Firestone, the CEO of RES Asset Management. Let's check stocks. Lower across the board, you see the Dow is a basically flat. It's down about 17 or so. We're really focused, though, on the NASDAQ. Maybe that is the place to have a look today because of what's happening in interest rates. Yes, they're not as high as they were. The 10-year was at 130, a little bit above that as we were talking about yesterday. It's dipped back a little bit here, but that is uh, certainly the story of the moment. I'm wondering, Carrie, as to whether you think rising rates are going to derail this rally. Well, rising rates certainly have an effect somewhere. I mean, we know that lowering rates has been very, very positive for the market. We've had have had no increase in rates really consistently for quite some time. We had sort of a fake out. And now these seem to be moving higher. At a certain point, it's going to affect the ability of investors to think through, well, no brainer to put money in the market at any sort of valuation because I can't get anything on on my money in fixed income. There will be uh, availability for yield production at a certain interest rate, whether it's one and a half percent or two percent, and that will cause an inverse relationship. There'll be some multiple compression or there'll be a compression of the valuations where there's no multiple, where we've had higher and higher prices on companies that sell for, you know, 40 times, 50 times sales. Forget about earnings because there are no earnings. And therefore, there should be at the highest level of valuation in the market. And, you know, I'm talking about the companies that, that have been parabolic over the past few months. There should be some reset where they do have to come down to earth to some extent because of interest rates being competitive in the marketplace. Okay, so Steve, that's the question of the moment, right? And Kerry's talking directly about the tech trade. A lot of these stocks have, that have absolutely gone parabolic, are those now the stocks that are most at risk? The tech trade because of rising rates. Well, I, I think you have to really separate tech trade into two different trades. There are tech companies that still have great business models that aren't unreasonably valued that I think they'll do fine. And I'm not really worried about them. In the initial stages, as we're seeing today, you'll see the market be indiscriminate. But I'm with Kerry, so I think that there's a sector of the market, and I'd love Kathy Wood to address this when she comes on, that is very vulnerable, where there are 50 times sales, which are ridiculous multiples. We know that they're unsustainable, and it's been a question of what's the catalyst to get them to come down to more reasonable valuations. 
and it will be rising rates. However, I do believe it's a different playbook this time than what we've seen in the past because of the digitization of the economy that's been pulled forward by the pandemic. So you're not going to see the typical sell-off in tech, in growth stocks, and compression of multiples of reasonable companies. I think actually that the earnings of those companies will grow into the multiples. So I'm of two minds of this, that it got to be very, very selective as to where you go. And I'd, much, I'd be much more concerned in a rising rate environment in the industrials, which, by the way, have very inflated multiples relative to their historic moves. You know, Joe, if you're going to say, you know, one of the principal reasons why stocks have been attractive and the market has continued to go up, it's because of rates. That's what you always hear. Relative to where rates are, relative to where rates are, stocks are not expensive. So how can it not be the other way then? If rates start to rise off of those low, even though they're low levels, doesn't the dynamic change? The playbook changes. I like that Stephen Weiss used that word, and I think that's exactly what's going on right now understand the cycles in the market and in 2020 we had a cycle where we had a deflationary environment in a deflationary environment as a money manager you're searching for companies where you could see visibility for growth so that takes you to mega cap technology that takes you to emerging growth that takes you to established growth now as you begin to reflate which is exactly what this steepening in the yield curve is suggesting to us there's economic optimism, and that economic optimism is coming, Scott, a lot faster than the street was positioned for. So if that's going to be the case, what you're going to be doing is you're going to be paring back some of those emerging growth and established growth ownerships, and you're going to have to go out, and whether it's financials, healthcare, materials, or energy, you're going to have to reposition accordingly. Given the market cap-weighted structure of established growth, that could put you in a position where you easily could see a correction. Understand, you visit the 50-day moving average from where we are right now, that's 3% lower. If you visit the 200-day moving average, that's 13% lower than where we are. So economic optimism built on reflation, we've experienced it before in the market. It's a good thing. We went through it in 2010 and 2011. But guess what? In 2010 and 2011, we had two corrections of greater than 10% because of the euro debt crisis and because of the debt debacle here in the United States. So a correction absolutely can unfold and it's predicated on the way people are positioned. They're not positioned for the economic optimism and this reflation trade that's happening much faster than we expected. That means, Doc, that, that you know, and the Nasdaq is voting today that that it could be more at risk than anything else. Is that true? Uh, I don't think so, Scott, but I do agree that, uh, I mean, for instance, when I uh, saw the 13F and I saw Warren Buffett selling uh, some of his Apple, obviously the gentleman has done extremely well. His team has traded that brilliantly. Um, however, uh, in September, in a 20-day period, I think, Scott, from basically Labor Day till about, you know, the third week in September, we saw a 24% correction in Apple went from 138 to 105 like that. Now we've got Warren Buffett lightening up, not saying he wants to get out, but saying, you know, I'm taking some of my chips off the table here. And as he and put it into, obviously, uh, Chevron and Verizon. But as that happened, 
I was one of the people that decided, you know what, I'm going to roll down my calls. Uh, I had written calls against my Apple stock, which is my largest holding, and I've rolled them all the way down, Scott, to the 130 and 132.50, I think, area. Um, and I've done that because I think we will see pressure on some of these stocks. I don't think Apple's one of them that, for instance, can't justify the multiple stocks. But Scott. you did that. I think, you know, stocks like. You did that because of Buffett? Go ahead. You did that because Buffett, because oh, of yeah. the 13F, said that Buffett reduced the size of his position in Apple, which I think was his largest position, and may just be a matter of it's just outsized relative to the rest of the book. Exactly. But. So then how low do we carry? I don't think we carry a full 24% again, Scott. Back down, that would be about 110, 111 if we did that from 145, the January high, all the way down to uh, you know, a full correction like we saw in September. But if we have people that are saying, well, if one of the smartest investors on the street, as far as equities, decides that he wants to lighten up a little bit, maybe I should do that too. That's why I think, Scott, Apple should be somewhat vulnerable into the 122 to 124 ish range. And that's why I rolled down those calls because I could capture some $5, almost $6 uh, by doing that, which would protect me from where we are now, 130, all the way down to about that 124 level. It's not insurance, but it does provide some offset to that kind of a move lower. Okay, so Kerry, you're also trimming Apple, notable. You're also mm -hmm. trimming Zoetis and Twilio and PayPal, higher multiple stocks. Not that Apple's multiple is, is all that high, but you're looking for trade-offs to stocks because of where their multiples are. If you get multiple compression because rates are going up, you're looking for opportunities elsewhere. Yeah, correct. So we didn't trim anything today. So we did Zoetis last week. The other trades we've done in the last few weeks we, we did it when we thought the time was right. And yes, I mean, we have bought names that are lower multiples. We bought American Express. We bought SL Green, real estate company, very low multiple. We have tried to reposition in some names uh, that, in fact, O'Reilly Auto Parts have come down over the last few months where we think there are more opportunities. If, if you look at some of the names that, you know, they're fantastic stocks. We own Twilio. We love Twilio. But that stock has gone up hundreds of percents. You know, Tesla, if you look at iDrive, MongoDB, Trade Desk, these stocks are up 300, 400 percent. If they come down 20 percent or 25 percent, that is not that much of a correction relative to where they were a year ago or in March of 2020. So taking some money off the table of, from those really kind of fantastic stocks that have been vertical is a portfolio decision that is appropriate and it's prudent in this kind of environment. But there are names, whether it's, you know, Home Depot is, is a reasonably priced stock. Facebook is reasonable. If you look at some of the other uh, names among the fangs, they're not crazily expensive anymore because so much of the market has come up to them and 15% of the market trades at multiples of sales, as we talked about before, which is really kind of in the 1999-2000 level where we have to be careful. And I think that the market is saying that today. Okay. So let's, let's expand a little bit on this, this Buffett 13F news that we got along with a, a number of other filings. Since, John, you went there in terms of reducing the position in Apple, as they did in Wells Fargo and GM as well. GM obviously been... Um, a, a humongous winner. 
I want to know what you think, John Najarian, since you made a move in Apple after you saw what Berkshire did, they exited their position altogether in J.P. Morgan. Now, I don't know if you think that's surprising or not, but you own J.P. Morgan shares, and you've always talked glowingly about yep. them and Jamie Dimon. So what do you do, if anything, there? Well, um, just uh, like last week, Scott, what I talked about when I said, it, you know, depending how fast we get to 130, 140, 150 on that 10-year, I think we top out and have to head back down. Otherwise, I think uh, the market has some real issues. I think that heading back down will give Mr. Buffett or anybody else a re-entry into J.P. Morgan, but I'm perfectly happy holding that one. I also own Wells Fargo, and I own a call spread in there, long the 35s, short the 40s in Wells Fargo. And that one, unlike Apple, is not experiencing that push lower. Instead, it's moving to the upside. So I don't see a reason, and that's with Buffett lightening up, as you said. I, I don't think that you need to get out of J.P. Morgan. I think that the issue was specific to Apple with how big his position was in there, Scott, because obviously it was his largest position at Berkshire. So I just figured that any coattailing by investors is why I wanted to you know, move my protection down um, in Apple. But as far as uh, JP Morgan, I don't think anything substantially changed about their business. And I don't think anybody else follows Mr. Buffett uh, out of JP Morgan or out of uh, Wells Fargo. I think those are different scenarios. Joe, can, can we take something from exiting out of JPM, out of PNC Financial, out of M&T Bank? Is that a, a statement about a, a belief that rates might be, as Doc said, topping? It's hard to, well, you know, we're, we're there's all conjecture, it's speculation, right? They're not here to tell us exactly oh, sure. why they yep. made why, why they made those moves. But can we surmise something from them? Hmm. Yeah, what we could surmise for long-term investors and even short-term traders is it is incredibly difficult to try and make investments and trades based on where you think a 10-year Treasury is going to be going. That's just, in the history of the markets, incredibly challenging to do. I could see the 10-year Treasury sitting right now at 1.30, ripping above 1.50, which is where the S&P dividend yield is, and goes back to the December 31st, 2019 closing price at 192, I could see it falling back to 1%. That is a very difficult thing to, to uh, try and offer. Well, more importantly, well, the fact I mean, that- you can, I don't need to know a number from you, but certainly you could have an investment thesis, Joe, that says, you know what? Mm -hmm. Okay, the economy's gonna reopen, um, hopefully sooner rather than later. You're gonna have a bit of a reflation trade, which is already taking place now, perhaps. Mm -hmm. I think rates are going to continue yep. to rise. I may not have an exact number in my head, but I can say now's the time to buy the <laughs> banks. Or you say, well, rates have gone up you know, a fair amount. The bank stocks have anticipated that because they started moving a lot before rates started moving in the manner in which they did. And you can think that that's going to continue. Thus, you want to stay invested in the banks. What's wrong with that? That seems easy. Uh, I don't know that it's easy, but there's nothing wrong with it. That's a, per a personal strategy that one might try and apply in the market. But again, it's to me, it's very difficult to do. There is reflation. There is economic optimism. That is obvious within the marketplace right now. But positioning is also incredibly important, Scott. How much of the move higher right now in the 10-year yield is because you had uh, a treasury market that was positioned long? 
coming into the month of February. How much of that unwind is the reasoning behind what we're seeing? So I, I think I just respectfully, I think it's difficult to do. I think when you look at Mr. Buffett exiting the holdings of banks, I'm sorry, I don't understand that. Given where we are in the cycle, given the valuation for financials, I disagree with that strongly. I would have stayed in that. In the case of Wells Fargo, you've endured multiple years of significant underperformances and challenges for that company. Finally, you have CEO Charlie Shaw right, well. beginning to turn the company around. I don't know why you'd get out of it. All right, well, you did that with IBM, too, right? I mean, you endure, you endure, you endure, and then you're like, I'm out because I don't feel like enduring anymore yeah, because this okay. thing's not going anywhere. And, and let's be clear, when, I, when I'm suggesting something's easy, I'm not saying investing, um, making the investment call itself is, is the easy part. It's easy for me mm -hmm. to come up with a thesis, though, about why I think bank stocks could work in the environment that we're in. Yes. That, that, that's all I'm mm -hmm. suggesting. I just want to make sure that, that sure. we're clear. Um, but Certainly. I'm not trying to suggest that what you guys are trying to do is, is easy in any way, shape, or form. Steve Weiss, this new position in Chevron to me is very interesting from, from Berkshire Hathaway. Um, and they've obviously had, these stocks have had a huge move. And energy is very much the focus now. It's because of what's happening down in Texas. And the price of WTI is right now a little north of $60, the, higher, the highest end of the, the range that it's been in recently. This, to me, is a bet that your reopen trade and more consumption is going to lead energy stocks like Chevron higher, yes? You know, it's kind of interesting. Everything that, that Buffett does, I believe, is bottoms up, and he's been clear about that. He's not investing based upon the 10-year or any other macro factor, or even thematically. Uh, but Chevron, I did find very interesting. Uh, given where rate, given where prices are now, of course, we don't know exactly when he entered the position. It could have been when oil was a lot lower because it's a, over a 90-day period. But here, here's what I'd say. You know, look, nobody's right all the time. Hopefully nobody's wrong all the time. I'm not an investor in energy stocks. Uh, I think the news we got from Saudi today about increasing production uh, we're seeing, and the Texas weather or weather across the country, most of the country, is the blow off for energy prices. And I think they trend lower from here. So Buffett takes a long, long term view, and he's betting, I'm assuming, on management, restructuring the business, continuing to restructure it. He's not betting on where oil prices are going today or even next year. Uh, in terms of you know, his other moves, they're all based upon those stories. It's not based upon interest rates, and this isn't based upon oil today, mm. is my view. You know, but, it, uh, Yeah, I found that very, very interesting it's of a, all the moves he made. Kerry, I mean, it's, it's a different Berkshire Hathaway than it was 10 and 20 years ago. The kinds of views that Buffett would have taken years, if not decades ago, has potentially been supplanted by other people who are running the portfolio who may have a different investing style than Mr. Buffett has had. You have to take that into consideration too. Does this move in Chevron means they, they, mean they, they think oil's going back to 100? I don't know. Well, it certainly uh, means that they believe there's value in Chevron. Uh, whatever the changes may have happened within the Berkshire decision-making cohort, it still seems that there's an awful lot of discipline when it comes to valuation. And, you know, you rarely see uh, 
you know, Buffett buying a very high multiple stock or one that has no multiple because there are no earnings. So to, to some extent, there's a consistency and that's what Steve's referring to. There's also changes because, you know, selling out of a bank at, at this point seems a little bit of um, anachronistic, uh, anachronistic for Berkshire Hathaway. There must be some reason based on the work that they've done or perhaps they only want to own so many positions and they're going to take the the JP Morgan money and put it into um, Chevron. There are going to be fewer players left in the energy patch. We, you know, we, we know that that's been happening and it's been such an underperforming sector. You know, when you think about the percent of the S&P that was energy, you know, we can go back decades, but of course, you know, well over 10%, 14%, and now it's, you know, two and a half, three percent. So there's a lot of room, even if you don't get anywhere near 100, if you can stay around 50, uh, this is a company that can make a lot of money and definitely support its dividend. Well, the, the bottom line, Doc, is that, you know, if, if you want to consolidate what you have in, in the financials, and we're trying to read between the lines and think about, well, what are they thinking about? These stocks have moved a lot. It's undeniable, given their position in Bank of America, that they think that one is the cream of the crop in, in the, the financial space. Is that how we should think of it and our viewers should think of it too? Hmm. Um, well, uh, <laughs> I think the, the, that one's the least fully valued. How about that, Scott? <laughs> Not quite the same as the cream of the crop. I don't know how anybody would make that <laughs> argument over uh, J.P. Morgan versus Bank America or Wells Fargo. But I think as far as the least fully valued of the majors, I think this is the one that's got, um, and I've said that before, um, some of the most upside. I mean, I really like Citi. I like Bank America. I own both. I like Wells Fargo. But of those three, yeah, Bank America has some of the best exposure to what I want and is not fully valued. Whereas Jamie Dimon, those guys have had a very steady hand and they've continued to perform and outperform the rest of the mega cap banks. So I don't know, uh, as far as I think the team was looking at which one is the least uh, high versus the rest mm. of them. And I think they stuck with Bank America for that reason. Hmm. As rather than the best of the best. Okay. Um, that's your, that's your Scott, rather than the best of the best because Best of the best means, you know, in this case, means fully valued. At 144 a share, well, that doesn't JPM, mean fully valued. It I think means it's that a he lot. thinks. What do you mean? I mean, they've got like a billion, uh, I don't know, billion dollars worth of of uh, of, of Bank of America. Um, you know, mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, that that says something, right? That it, they think that's the best of the best. Sure I, I don't see that on my list of trimming anything. I see the, some of the other banks stock. Well, again, I, I think you and I are talking slightly different, Scott, as far as which one has more upside from this point. And, you know, again, we don't have the rearview mirror to know exactly when they were selling what they were selling and so forth. They have more than but a billion at shares, 144, by the way. They have more than a, they right, have 1.03, right, at least what I can see, 1.03 billion shares, not dollars. I, I misspoke there. Um, makes it an even bigger, you know. Uh, accentuates the point I think that I'm I'm trying to make. Let me, Joe. I know you want to say something real quick. Well, give me something quick, and then I got to yeah. I got to run because I got Kathy Wood waiting. Okay, real quick. I think what stands out to me from uh, Warren Buffett and his team's action is that they're getting more aggressive. 
They might be less long-term in nature. And as example, look at Verizon. Remember, they owned Verizon from 2014 to 2019. They exited in 2019. Now they're getting back into Verizon again. So I just think maybe we have to begin to view the optics of this company much differently than we did in the past. Maybe they're going to be more aggressive, maybe less long-term oriented. And that's an interesting dynamic. Yeah, okay, good stuff. Thank you for that, Joe. All right, we have much more ahead. John's Unusual Activities coming up. Plus, as I mentioned, we're going to be joined by ARK Invest, Kathy Wood. Don't want to miss that interview. Go through a number of different uh, ETFs that she has. She has set the whole ETF world on fire of late. And a reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back after this short break. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is your CNBC News update at this hour. The Biden administration says that it will provide $650 million to expand COVID-19 testing at elementary and secondary schools, as well as at homeless shelters. It also plans to provide $815 million to increase the production of testing supplies. The CDC is warning of widespread delays in COVID-19 vaccine shipments because of the icy weather across much of the nation. Vaccination appointments have already been delayed in a number of states due to those storms. And nearly all Democratic members of the South Carolina House have walked out of the chamber in protest to a bill that will ban almost all abortions in the state. The bill is expected to pass easily, and Governor McMaster has promised he will sign it. And conservative talk show icon Rush Limbaugh has died. His wife made the announcement on his radio show. Limbaugh announced that he had lung cancer early last year. Rush Limbaugh was 70 years old. Scott, I'll send it back to you. Okay, Rahel, appreciate that. Thank you. Let's go to John Ajarian has his unusual activity now. Doc, what do you got? Well, Scott, uh, obviously that little blue check mark over at Twitter, uh, that blue bird is what caught our eye today, Scott, because uh, this stock was... $46 a month ago. Today it was up over 74, I think, uh, on last night's close. It's down a dollar and a half or two dollars right now, Scott, right around that 72 ish level. And they came in and rolled, they did the opposite of what I did in Apple, Scott. Instead of rolling down, they rolled up from the 65 strike, 10,000 calls. They'd made millions of dollars on that purchase. They rolled up to the 70s out in March. So I bought 70s out in March as well, Scott. That's a slightly in-the-money call. Um, if this stock uh, turns around on the day or over the next couple days, I'll sell a higher strike against it. But 10,000 is a million share equivalent. That's a pretty big bet over on Twitter. I joined them and probably be in there about three to four weeks. Okay. Doc, thank you. Time for the futures outlook. We said crude is on the rise again amid supply disruptions down in Texas. Let's bring in Brian Stutland for more on the move. Where's your bet now, now that we've topped 60 bucks? Well, you know, if you look at the trend channel here in crude oil, that's been straight up since November 1st and after the election. But we're really trading at the top end of this channel right now on a technical basis. And then when you look at the fundamentals, the Saudis came out, said that they're going to meet some of the supply constraints here, pump more oil. I think that triggers down to Russia and whatnot. 
So oil, although I think we're in this commodity super boom cycle that we're entering right now, oil is one of the names, though, where people can meet the demand and, and, and bring the supply up to those needs. So I think we'll see that despite the little blip here that's going on in Texas, I still think demand will be met further down. And that's why I'd be a seller of oil. Uh, looking at the March futures contract, selling 60.30, looking for it to trade down to 59 and putting a stop up at 61.60. This way, I know it's one-to-one -one payout here where I'm risking $1,300 to make 1300 But I think having seen oil at the top end of this channel here, I think there's going to be some resistance right above 60 here, Scott. So I'd be a little bit cautious, maybe take some off the title if you've been long. Maybe look at some of the individual names in oil and short the futures product. That's a great way to play a long short trade as well using futures to do that. All right, Brian, appreciate it. Brian Stutland joining us there. We'll see you soon. Up next, a halftime interview you don't want to miss. ARK Invest, Kathy Wood. We're back in two minutes. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. She's been called one of the most disruptive and innovative forces in the ETF world today. She's also one of the most successful. Kathy Wood's signature ARK Innovation Fund returned an astounding 148 percent in 2020. And she says there's still a lot of runway ahead. Kathy's the founder, CIO and CEO of ARK Invest. And she's with us now in our ETF Edge, along with Bob Pisani. Kathy, it's nice to see you again. Welcome to Halftime. Bob, why don't you start us off? Kathy, great to see you, and what a tremendous year it's been for you. You now have over $50 billion in assets under management, and your flagship ARK Innovation Fund's up nearly 20% this year alone. But I've got to start with your biggest holding. It's Tesla in yes. the ARK Innovation Fund. It's also in the Next Gen Internet Fund. It's also in the Technology and Robotics Fund that you run. How do you feel about Tesla's price now, and are you still adding to your position? Uh, yes. Well, as you know, we report our trades uh, every day and you will see that uh, we have been adding to Tesla. Uh, we, our confidence in Tesla has grown as we've done research on what ride sharing potentially could add. It could limit the risk significantly. It's a much more profitable business than electric vehicles. And we do think even though uh, I think there's some debate at uh, Tesla whether or not they should launch a human-driven ride-hailing network. It would be a very good bridge, we think, to their autonomous strategy, and we think they will decide to do that. Uh, I don't think anyone has uh, in their models uh, anything for ride-sharing. And then uh, as time goes on and we learn about their artificial intelligence expertise, the 30 billion miles they've collected of real-world driving data. No one comes close, not even, I think Google might be at 30 million compared to 30 billion. And we know that in the AI world, and autonomous is AI, 
that uh, that the the company with the the most data and the best quality data will win. Uh, so uh, we're pretty excited about autonomous and our, the probability of success in autonomous, uh, we believe, is going up, uh, and therefore our price target will probably follow at some point. Okay, and uh, Bitcoin is on everybody's mind right now. Your next-gen internet fund has a very large position in the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. Uh, so I, I, your thoughts on this, your thoughts on Bitcoin, a Bitcoin ETF for 2021, is it coming? And do you have any concerns that the Grayscale closed-end fund still trading at a pretty significant uh, premium? Well, the premiums come down quite a bit. I think uh, now that we know uh, that the next SEC commissioner is going to be David Gensler, uh, who uh, spent the last few years at MIT uh, teaching a class about blockchain technology, Bitcoin. I think he understands the technology uh, and he understands the currency itself. Uh, so I think the probability of an ETF uh, has gone up. Uh, we also know that the director of research uh, for crypto in the crypto space at the SEC has been promoted and will be reporting directly uh, to Gensler. Uh, so again, uh, I think we have uh, individuals now uh, involved who really understand the space. And uh, I think the likelihood has gone up. What has surprised us, we expected institutional interest to pick up this year. And it certainly has. But the way in which it's picked up has surprised us. Uh, I don't think we ever thought there would be broad-based uh, substitution of Bitcoin for cash on corporate balance sheets. Uh, so we find that very interesting. Uh, if all corporations in the United States were to put, uh, I think it's, yes, 10% of their cash into Bitcoin, that alone would add uh, $200,000 to the Bitcoin price. Uh, now, we obviously do not believe this is going to happen uh, very quickly. Uh, we are, we're talking about maybe the equivalent of $900 billion market cap equivalent for, for Bitcoin. That's, that's less than half the price of uh, you know the apples and Amazons of the world, so you know this has to mature a little bit before broad-based adoption can take place. But we're very reassured uh, that companies like Square and Tesla have chosen to allocate. They're on the right side of change when it comes to innovation, and uh, therefore we think it's wise that they. Uh, diversify some of their cash. And I think the biggest surprise to many uh, Tesla doubters is that it is now in a position where it has that much cash uh, that it is diversifying. Now, you've been directionally right on a number of other big stock bets, including Teladoc. This is your largest holding in the genomics revolution fund you run. It's also a big holding uh, in the innovation fund. It's up about 40% this year. It's got a $40 billion market cap right now. This is telemedicine. Is telemedicine really going to continue to shine once COVID recedes? Well, we had a great opportunity to uh, buy into Teladoc when the stay-at-home stocks were starting to uh, flatten out as the vaccine uh, was on the horizon. Teladoc was one of those stocks. And it then was hurt by an acquisition it made, Livongo. Uh, this is a beautiful acquisition for uh, for Teladoc. 
the most important uh, variable, again, I'm going to come back to AI over and over again, because we think that is going to represent $30 trillion in market cap during the next uh, 10 years. And uh, we are just beginning. So with Livongo, uh, Teladoc now has one of the best artificial intelligence teams and some of the best data. That's the other thing we'll come back to. Most data, best quality data. And uh, we think the combination of Teladoc and Livongo is, is going to be a powerhouse. One services more the acute setting in medicine, and uh, that would be Teladoc itself primarily. And Livongo is more involved on the chronic side. Uh, so chronic conditions, kidney conditions, uh, mental health, and so forth. So uh, we believe that with this data, uh, these two, two companies, now that they're together, now that they put their AI teams together, uh, are going to be able to um, make uh, healthcare, help make the healthcare ecosystem uh, better, cheaper, faster, more productive, more creative. What we say about all kinds of innovation, they're in a beautiful position to do this. Kathy, it's, it's not just Teladoc. This is Scott now. It's not just Teladoc out of your signature innovation fund that has enjoyed of spectacular gains over the last year. I'm, I'm looking at the list of your, your top holdings, whether it's Spotify or Shopify or Zoom Video, for example. Uh, the gains have just been tremendous. I'm wondering what happens when we get on with the rest of our lives after COVID, and how do you think about taking profits, even though I know your, your typical sort of outlook is a five-year time horizon, that doesn't mean you can't take profits every now and then and redeploy capital elsewhere to some of the laggards, perhaps. How do you think about that? Sure. Well, what, the last year has been instructive. During the coronavirus crisis, we consolidated to our, our highest conviction names, especially those that were, uh, they were tormented by, I would say, algorithms who were looking for small cash cushions and cash burn. Uh, and so we had great opportunities to buy stocks at a fraction of a cost uh, of the cost uh, uh, from just a month earlier. So certainly Invite uh, and Zillow were two of those stocks. Uh, and um, and then they've had magnificent runs. Many Square would be in this category as well. Many are up five to ten times. Uh, Tesla is also in that category. There was a lot of fear about its condition. Uh, and then what you saw was uh, the stay-at-home stocks uh, start to flatten out. So uh, toward the end of last year. So some of the stocks in, into which we had concentrated our portfolios, they were up, as I mentioned five to tenfold, we started moving back into these stay-at-home stocks because it seems to us that many analysts and portfolio managers believe that after uh, the vaccines uh, make it through our population and, and the rest of the world, that these stocks are, will be done. Uh, we actually think that uh, that innovation makes the world a better place generally in the ways I described earlier, and that the, uh, the coronavirus has accelerated the shift towards these new ways of doing things, these new ways of spending time. Uh, so we, we, we were happy to get the reprieve in some of these so-called stay-at-home stocks in the last, I'm gonna say six months. It really started in July, August, uh, giving us time 
to move out of some of the names that had taken off and into those uh, that that uh, were marking time. So that's what we do. We, we are considered a liquidity provider, mm -hmm. which means when people are uh, selling, we will be buying. And when people are buying, and these are investors in re retail and, and institutional, we are uh, uh, likely to be taking profits, as you say. Taking profits is never a bad idea. Well, can you envision owning, for example, a Zoom in two to three years? Or, or will you have moved on to something else because the world has changed? Well, I think the world is changing because of Zoom. And uh, I think we're going to be working very differently uh, in the future, sure, there's going to probably be a combination of in the office and stay at home. Uh, but now we know it's possible. Uh, we look at Zoom in the context of the, um, the tech stack. And if you look at the tech stack, the, uh, the enterprise communications layer is the biggest. It's a $1.5 trillion layer. This is where Zoom is playing. And they're starting to... Uh, add uh, features uh, to, to their services. And I think all of us will agree, my experience with Zoom is it is the best platform for video, uh, is the easiest uh, user interface. Uh, and uh, I do believe that it will pull away from the pack. Let me ask you about Palantir, which we just found out you've, you've added to. Can you tell our viewers why you added rather significantly to your stake in Palantir? Yes, uh, they reported yesterday, and uh, the stock was uh, down on the report. Um, it, it's interesting to listen to the CEO. Um, he was speaking our language. He, he essentially said to investors, you know, we are playing in a massive space here, and we're going to invest aggressively now in order to capitalize on the exponential changes that are taking place here. Uh, so if you are short-term in your focus, um, you probably don't want to spend too much time investing in Palantir. Uh, so that's music to our ears because, and we do believe more and more companies are going to start behaving in this way instead of catering to short-term uh, time horizons uh, and short-term, short, what we would say, in some cases, short-sighted shareholders who are much more interested in profits now dividends now, share repurchases now, then they are in a company investing aggressively for going short-term profitability in order to really to catch some very big waves out there. Uh, so uh, I'm astonished. Their, their, work, they, their, their uh, revenues are still 61% government, but I've learned, and I think most people in the innovation space have learned over time, that some of the most important innovations uh, in our lifetimes have started in the government, especially in the, in the defense sector and in the intelligence sector. So we think in many ways, and they won't talk about how, uh, but they're certainly garnering a lot of business, which tells us that they are uh, seeing in the future and investing in the future in, in ways that companies, governments, uh, but but in, increasingly, companies are going to uh, need, uh, especially as we're competing against China. I think we've been, uh, again, with this short-term time horizon, we have not been spending enough in innovation. And so 
you know, Palantir's attitude is refreshing. It's exactly how uh, we invest. We want our companies to invest aggressively. We don't want profits now. We want them to invest aggressively because we're moving into many winner-take-most markets. And the autonomous taxi world is a very good example of that. That is why our confidence in Tesla, going back to the largest position in our portfolio, is so high. I'm going to ask you about more stocks in just a moment. If you could stay with us, though, I'd like to take a quick break. Come back. We'll have more with Kathy Wood in just two minutes. We're back with ARK Invest, Kathy Wood, our Bob Pisani joining us, too. So, Kathy, I, I know you spoke of a lot of the stocks in, the, in the, the flagship fund as having a longer runway than maybe, you know, some would suggest the, the pandemic would, 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 would say. It seems undeniable to me, though, that you must be thinking about the impact of higher rates on the kinds of stocks that have been tried and true winners for you all throughout, whether it's the Signature Fund, the FinTech Innovation Fund, and even other areas of the ETFs that you have. Are you worried that as rates go up, those stocks could come down? Uh, well, I, I do believe if rates were to take a sharp turn up, uh, that we would, uh, we would see a valuation reset and our portfolios would uh, would be um, prime candidates for that valuation reset, of course. Now, one of the things that I found interesting over the last uh, over the last really 20 years is that the the S and P's PE ratio tends to peak out in the 20 to 25 times range of the forward forward earnings, and I think the reason for that is most portfolio managers and maybe quantitative research. Uh, researchers are looking at normalized nominal GDP growth in the four to 5% range, which is where long-term interest rates should be normalized. Uh, we actually think normalized uh, GDP growth is probably closer to three. Now, if you think, uh, and, and that's where long-term interest rates uh, should stabilize. If you think of 20 to 25 times, uh, that's one over four to five percent growth. So it's the inverse of the growth rate, the nominal GDP growth. And that's where it seemed to be peaking out. We think there's actually longer term. Uh, I agree with you, Scott. There will be a valuation reset. There will be fear, I'm sure. And we will use it to our benefit, concentrating our portfolio to our highest conviction names. Uh, but I think longer term, especially given the the powerful growth trajectories that the five innovation platforms around which we revolve all of our research, uh, that, that those trajectories are so powerful uh, that these multiples, that they, these companies are going to grow into their multiples a lot faster than most uh, investors are now expecting. And so that's a source of confidence for us. Steve Weiss has a question for you, Kathy. Hi, Steve. Hey, Kathy, good to see you again. Uh, so, so my, my question plays off what Scott just asked you. Do you take into account or do you have any type of forecast in terms of rates and adjust the portfolio to that forecast? 
or do you keep cash there? And ETFs are kind of interesting in terms of the level of cash you're allowed to keep or not keep. Um, so, so how do you do it? So rates right now, they're moving up. Do you say, okay, we may be in a little trouble here with this valuation reset. They're going to jump up another whatever up to, you know, maybe 2%. Do you get in front of it or do you just take it as it comes? No, we, we use it actually. Uh, and so what we've been doing for the last six months is expanding the number of names in our portfolio. And we do that um, as a bull market extends because it, it's, in some ways it's a tax efficient strategy. What we will do during a correction, especially a severe correction like the coronavirus crisis presented, we will sell names in which which are creating losses now because again we've bought them we've diversified and bought them more recently sell those names creating losses to buy our highest conviction names uh, some of the names we've been moving into you'll notice uh, are names like uh, some of the bigger biotech names uh, regeneron novartis uh, uh, takeda and what we will do during, and, and we, we think of them as cash-like, but there's also a reason, an investment reason we are moving into them. Uh, ironically, we think they're deep value names because these companies, the ones we are choosing, are uh, they are able to use the convergence of technologies that is taking place today in the genomic revolution. So DNA sequencing, artificial intelligence, once again, uh, and uh, gene therapies, uh, new technologies, new ways of doing things, uh, they are investing aggressively now. They have to because they've lost a lot of their pipelines or will soon do so. Uh, and we think the returns on investment in the biotech space, and I'm talking big biotechs, if they're doing this correctly, could move from the high single digits today back into the golden age of healthcare. So in the 80s, we saw 20 to 30%. So we're using them as cash-like instruments in, in some, some way because we will move back into our pure play names uh, if we get into a severe correction. But we also see the investment merit in these names. They're just not pure play names. So we, we use corrections toggling back and forth. And so right now our flagship, uh, our flagship portfolio has roughly 52 names in it. At the low point in the coronavirus last year, it was as low as 33, I believe. Kathy, Bob's going to wrap it up uh, with you. I have one quick question for what do you view of the SPACs right now? W would you ever invest in, in these SPACs? We are investing in them. Which ones? Uh, not all of them. We think there's, well, DraftKings, Skills, Butterfly, that, uh, that uh, merger was just consummated today. Blade, which I think is still going under the name Experience, so that uh, that uh, acquisition has not been consummated yet. So yes, we're but we're being very careful. Uh, we don't like the opacity okay. in some of these uh, in some of these specs, and uh, nor the uh, incentive system in some some of them. Uh, but yeah. this is a way for venture capital uh, to uh, to. Uh, have liquidity events uh, sooner than might otherwise yeah. have been the case, giving the public markets an, yeah. uh, an opportunity mm. to invest in some innovation-oriented names much sooner than, than uh, might have been the ca case with just the IPO process. Uh, we understand the, Kathy, the questionable nature of the, the compensation schemes in some of them. Though. Interesting. Mm -hmm. 
Kathy, we've only got a couple minutes left, so I'll need a quick answer. We want to ask you about something that's exciting a lot of us here at CNBC, and that's the Mars landing tomorrow. It's going to be one of the great technology feats of all time. I know you filed for a, a space ETF. Can you tell us what excites us about space? You said earlier in December it's important to get on the right side of change and stay on the right side of change because it's hit escape velocity. Is that what this is about? Is, is space another part of that whole change paradigm that you keep talking about? No, we do put space into that category. We will not, uh, I can't say anything. We're in the quiet period uh, when it comes to the fund itself. We have to wait until the SEC deems it effective. But yes, the right side of change. And the reason is always the same. The costs associated with launching, with rockets themselves, with antenna, uh, they're all coming down dramatically thanks to uh, you know, both the private and the public sector. But I think the private sector has really helped NASA out here. You've got Elon Musk, you've got Jeff Bezos, you've got Richard Branson uh, in another way. Uh, and uh, on the technolo technology side, we see SpaceX and Blue Origin pushing the envelope. So costs are coming down and the technologies are finally ready. I think the reusable rocket that uh, Elon you know, many people were saying, why is he doing that? Why is he doing that? <laughs> uh, and uh, of course, now we know the only way he's going to be able to get to Mars or whoever the first people are, uh, we are going to need re reusable rockets to do that. Uh, and so, uh, again, it's always about cost. Right. Costs are collecting. And it's always right. about technology being ready. Right. So, yes. We can't wait to find out the names that are going to be in that ETF when the time is right to do that. Kathy Wood, can't thank you enough for spending the time with us on Halftime. Bob Pisani, thank you so much for bringing that to us. It's been great Thanks, having Kat. you uh, as well. Let's get some quick final trades. You got a name for me, John Nigerian, then Steve Weiss? Car, Car Gurus, C-A-R-G, Scott, bought it. Teradyne. Okay, Carrie and Joe? American Tower. Louisiana Pacific. All right. Good stuff, everybody. Thanks for watching. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.